0: Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in just 30 minutes. Today, we are very thrilled to be speaking with Edward Miske. Edward is the sole survivor of a rare cancer. This year is his 10th year cancer survivorship anniversary, an anniversary he didn't think he was going to get. So he's celebrating with this book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. Among other things, Edward is an actor, a singer, songwriter, writer, and producer. Edward, welcome. We are uh, really happy to be speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much. Hearing that back is so funny because it's like, how many other things can there possibly be that you do?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's, thats that's my first question. When you meet somebody new on the street, what do you tell them that you do? I'm trying to, I literally was yelling at myself about this the other day.
1: I went to introduce myself to someone. They're like, what do you do? And my my initial response is I was like, I mean, like, what don't I do? Like, what do you want to know? But um, I'm trying to get better at being like, I'm an author and a creator. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because that kind of sums up the whole
0: jig, right? I think it touches everything. So that works. Uh, but kind of with the, with the author and creating piece, the book, uh, how did that come about? yeah. so I had cancer.
1: <laughs> and uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens that you don't ever see in TV or film or any other kind of medium that kind of showcases the cancer experience um that happened that I wasn't ready for, and no one warned me about. And I didn't really think that they were actually happening. I was basically I was gaslighting myself. Um, because I was like, this can't be real. I'm not like, you're just sad and, and going crazy is, is basically the narrative that I was telling myself until I started meeting other people who were around my age who also had cancer. And this was by sheer accident. This was not me. Like, I need a support group. This was like, you know, like the the you know pg-13 version of it is that i like went and met this guy and like we like had a little thing and and then afterwards like he mentioned that he was coming from this particular part of town and i was like oh that's where my hospital is and he like shut down and was like oh and i was like wait stop hang on and so we had a really great conversation about cancer we're still friends today and he's the reason i wrote this book because he was talking a lot about the same things that i was thinking and doing and having a really hard time with. And I was like, oh, well, here's the book. Just found it. Just fucked the book out. So that's what's gonna happen. Um, but it was it was a really great moment. Like we we again still are friends and talked about just like, you know, the the aftermath of being told that you are cancer free. You know, cancer, the treatment itself is garbage, but then like you get out and it's not, you know, the parade and celebration
0: and that you think it is. So at the time of that conversation, were you still in treatment? Were you cancer-free? Where were you when you met him? Yeah. So at that point, I was
1: about three years cancer-free. Okay. And I I was still kind of like banging my head against a wall, like what is happening in my life? And, you know, I think a lot of that was because I had defaulted back to what I was used to doing, like going to auditions and like getting drunk with friends and like just being silly and stupid and artsy and, you know, whatever else I was doing in my life at the time. And then he kind of derailed that because he kind of came along and said, like, I feel lost. I don't know what's going on. I'm not motivated to get up in the morning. I hate everything everyone is saying to me all the time. And it just was like this. Oh, yeah, that's how I felt for the last 30 years. Because <laughs> you, you just change. You change as a person. And it's not something that you really expect. Like, of course, something that catastrophic is going to change you. But the the preparedness for it is is lacking
0: yeah i mean even as as you say that i think most people have very little understanding and certainly no unless you've even had a close friend a family member go through a situation like this you still only have second hand so i'm going to ask you questions as, as 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 comfortable as you are answering i want to start here and you know, when you have the word soul and rare in your cancer uh, summary, not good. You know, the survivor in between is fantastic. So that's great. But if you could take us when you found out that uh, not only found out you had a rare cancer, but that ultimately that the chance of survivorship was not very high and that now you are the sole survivor. what 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 was that like? Well, those three things happened at very... That Three very different
1: points, right? So like, we found out I had cancer, we knew it was kind of an off-the-wall brand of cancer, if you will. And uh, that was kind of shocking, but we trusted the medical team and we were like, okay, well, you know, they they've dealt with stuff like this before, they know what they're doing, cool, fine. And then, like, maybe three rounds of chemo in, it became evident that they didn't know what they were doing, and they were shooting in the dark, and I requested that I sit down with my oncologist to be like, like, am I a dead man walking? Like, what's happening? And she basically just flat out, and I said, please be honest with me, I do not need bullshit right now. Like, I just need you to tell me straight up, do I need to start, like, planning a funeral? And in so many words, she kind of said, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and that's my interpretation of it. She was not that that forthcoming with that information. That was just my interpretation. But uh, she she kind of said, like, yeah, we're having a really hard time getting rid of this. It's not happening as quickly or as easily as we had anticipated. You know, there's lots of different types of lymphoma, of course. But like this particular type, which is called rare and large B-cell, Burke, it's like not Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, you know, takes up a whole page it um is not easy i didn't fit the demographic i didn't fit the prototype for it prototype is probably the wrong word but um you know i fit nothing that had to do with this cancer so getting rid of it was like what do we do <laughs> <laughs> you know so that that's how i found that out that it was rare like i didn't fit any of any of the things and so moving on we didn't know what to do and eventually I ended up switching hospitals. And then my oncologist at that second hospital, once I hit the five year cancer free mark, um, she kind of told me, you know, you're the only person who's ever lived this long without a recurrence or not dying. And I was like,
0: I, I, I didn't need to hear that. I didn't need to know that part. <laughs> How come? Why didn't she know that part? Why did she well, say this positive news?
1: Well, I mean, it is positive news in the sense that, like, I'm alive and I didn't have to have the funeral I planned, but it was very much like, well, I mean, you know, not wanting to put anything out in the universe and, like, knock wood and all the things, but should something happen and I be put in that position again, I'm the protocol. I'm the baseline for this case. And unless something ridiculous has happened after me, which I'm not keeping up to speed with, maybe I should be, Um, I'm it. And so what do you do with that? You know, like, it's kind of like, cool, there's one unicorn left and we don't know how to fix it.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. So I, thank you for kind of walking us through that, because as it is, it is one line in the bio, it certainly was a long period of time. And it was at different levels that each of those things became apparent or understandable. So that, that's that's very helpful. I mean, obviously, it's the case, but thank you for walking us through that. Sure. Sure. You mentioned that you were not searching for support groups or anything of that nature. Do you talk to uh, patients? Have you found it cathartic to speak to somebody who is traveling down a path that you went down? Have Have you thought about anything like that or do you do anything like that? Not in the capacity in
1: which you're talking about. I think the my version of that is doing just this, you know. Like I wrote the book to have this conversation, and I am seeking out mediums in which to talk about it more, uh, to have this conversation. You know, like support groups in my experience are very like you know, let's sit around and cry and talk about our feelings. And I want solutions. I want to solve the problem. I don't want to talk about it more than I need to. Like, let's, okay, cool. Like, let's go. I figured out why I feel this way. Let's fix it. Um, And I did not find that, that support groups functioned that way. So for me, like meeting people one-on-one, when I started writing the book, I reached out to people I knew who were within my age bracket and kind of like talked to them about their experience and drew from that. And, um, you know, I mean, it it just wasn't my thing, but this is my version of doing that in my way of having this book and talking about, like, you know, all the things that kind of blindside you, that you're like, well, this isn't in, you know, this movie that talks about cancer.
0: (laughs) Well, you mentioned movie, and that's where my, besides, again, secondhand tales, that's where my baseline for understanding what that diagnosis is like is that scene in the in the room where it's like you have cancer and everything else you know you don't understand you don't hear it's like they fast forward two months into treatment because it's like you're just uh so blindsided by it but you just describe it in a much more thoughtful way that uh you know first i was i want to say surprised but uh wholeheartedly into the uh belief of of that your doctor is going to take great care of you. And fortunately, you know, that, that was not the case. And uh, you would think that sometimes, you know, you would want to be skeptical or your first uh, instinct would be to, to say no way, or this isn't happening to me, but uh, you know, you, you walk us through the, what that period looked like and how you had the uh, unexpected good outcome, but rambling here. So I want to go back to the book. So the title Cancer, musical theater, and other, chronicle, and other chronic illnesses. How did you end up on that title? I cannot take credit for any of it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, who
1: deserves the credit there? Uh, my friend Alex Perlman. He's one of my oldest friends in the city. God love him. He is one of my favorite humans. And I was telling him about this book, and he just, he's a brilliant man, and he will never say that out loud or take credit for that kind of accolade, but he is. And he just said the title, and I was like, That's funny, (laughs) and uh, I didn't want the book to be serious. I didn't want it to be a dirge, and so the title just made sense. And it was there was never another title. It was only ever that, and uh, you know. So I that it was not me. It was Alex, one hundred percent, and I will never take credit
0: for that. Okay, well, you're also humble, so we'll add that to the to the list here of uh, well, 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 well. Okay, well, to be determined on that front. uh, Who should read this book? Anyone
1: who's had any kind of proximity to cancer, and I don't mean that like, oh, my my second cousin who lives 7,000 miles away had cancer. Like, that's not what I mean. I mean, like, you or if a family member or close friend or loved one has had it and or you've lost them to it or they are currently going through it. Um, it in the feedback I have gotten specifically from medical professionals that has changed their perspective on cancer care and bedside manner and what the experience as a human is, because, you know, I I talk about it in the book and I talk about it in these conversations as well. You become a patient. You're not a person, you're a patient. And the people who are taking care of you forget that like, you know, you need to eat and you want to have sex and you have relationships and, a number of other things, like some di- some days you just can't take a shit and that sounds fine on paper, but like it feels terrible. I went like I think six or seven days without going to the bathroom once. There's a whole chapter on it. It's thrilling. And it there's ju- it's just like the little things, you know, like I had a boyfriend during this time and then I didn't because they left. And then like my best friend, like I thought was going to be there for me and then wasn't because they decided that they couldn't be around. Um, You know, like little things like that happen that you're not prepared for. And I don't even know if if nurses or doctors know that that happens. And if they do, they're not going to offer it to you to like warn you because like, then you're skeptical of everyone around you. And you're like, wait a minute, I was warned (laughs) about this. Are you leaving me? I was warned about you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like this minefield, every step of the way is a minefield. And so, you know, you, you, the good side of that is that you really do find out who your friends are and who the people that are going to be there for you are. And that's, that's probably the best part about having cancer is that there's no question. Like I know exactly, I know exactly who's going to be there for me.
0: Uh, it is a silver lining as, as unfortunately to find out in that manner, but you do know who, who those people are uh the the bedside manner and the feedback from the doctors that's again surprising that that's and it's wonderful that they are having that perspective and it can't be overstated how difficult it must be to be in that position and then even doctor who's who and uh, medical staff who have proximity uh to, to yourself as a patient obviously they can't understand it's like so to read it must be very powerful for them have you had any feedback from uh Uh, any other, uh, cancer survivors?
1: Yeah. Um, the people first, I mean, first and foremost, frontline, like the people that I talked to and kind of consulted with when I decided to do this, like, you know, most of them were like nail on the head, buddy, you know, like they, they get it, you know, you can read between the lines and it's very nuanced, but, and in some places it's not very nuanced, but, (laughs) uh, you know, it, it very much is the, the, real and raw and i hate to use that terminology because it sounds so trite but it's the real and raw experience of it it's not the like you know wake up in a hospital room bald and and like oh my life is falling apart it's it's a slow 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 burn for that to happen um you know the way that your body changes the way that you change the way that your brain changes like chemo brain is such a wild concept like it's a thing that happens. Like I'm sure you've heard like wet brain with people who are alcoholics that go to like rehab and whatnot. It's kind of similar. Like you just, your brain just is like, and uh, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it because that's just the treatment that you're under. Um, you know, when I was a hard ass, I was really hard to deal with as a, as a patient. Because um, I wasn't happy, you know, and, and I wanted to just be around people and things that made me happy and doctors were not it. So, yeah, they get the brunt of it, and it it's it's not easy being a doctor or anyone in the medical profession, and I would never take that away from them. It's so difficult, especially in a in a field like oncology where like your death is part of your day. And I would never pretend to understand that.
0: So this will be an unfair question, kind of as a follow- up there. With your experience with with these doctors, medical professionals, why why do you think you obviously have to be excellent in what you do to go into an oncology field and an oncology role? Why why do you think these doctors made that choice ultimately? When when you describe such a, a difficult place to work, if you had to guess, I don't need to guess. Um, I asked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, not my oncologist, but my oncology nurse in the first hospital I was in. She was this elderly Jamaican lady and uh, just one of the nicest people I've ever met. Just nurses are salt of the earth, man. Like, Absolutely. holy shit. And uh, she came in one night and a little incident happened that is in the book that I'll I'll save for the pages. But uh, she walked in on me, let's say, and we ha- started having a conversation about why she does this. It was, like, I think my fourth day in the hospital, maybe. And I was like, why do you do this? And she told me, and this shook me to the core and still to this day does, that nursing was never on her radar. She never wanted to do it. She was a wife and a a mother. And her husband got cancer. And she tried to save his life by taking care of him at home and couldn't. And so she became a nurse to, as almost like a penance, to try and make up for that fact and like that just i'm like in a hospital room like hooked up to chemo poles and like just having like chemicals dripping through my body and so i'm like weeping on her arm while she's changing my my fucking iv shit and uh i mean i wish i could find her again and just like give her the biggest hug because she was such a star in that incident and in that in that those circumstances for me and like just that anecdote was like oh jesus christ And like just thinking, like that's how she walks around every day, thinking, like you know, couldn't save you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it up to you, like, good lord.
0: (laughs) Now that's an incredible story, and at least gives some, I don't say rationale, but some understanding of why somebody would do, you know, be in that day after day, a difficult position. And good for you for asking. And.
1: Please. I wish I would have asked my oncologist cuz she was I mean she's such a star too like I was terrified of her she's 4'11 and she wears like 6-inch <laughs> heels and mini skirts and like what a star loved her but was horrified of her all the time and that was at the second hospital and when I when I went there and had her like reassess cuz I was going for a second opinion um I kind of just said to her She gave me some really horrendous news. I was misdiagnosed, and there was all this other shit that was going on. And I just was like, how do you deal with this? Like, this is impossible to deal with. How do you deal with it? And it's probably not the best answer, but she said, I just put every little patient in a box, and I file them away, and I deal with them later. And I was like, okay, um, well, like, you're super busy, so when do you get to deal with them? And she just kind of was like, I don't. (laughs) I'll agree with you. Not the best answer there. Yeah, no, but I mean, like you do what you need to. Like you're working 24 hours a day. Like she's always on call. Like she's head of the department. She's world renowned. Like you don't get a break. And so probably that might be the best way for her to kind of deal with that.
0: Okay. My last question on the book you mentioned interviewing and reaching out to others. How did you decide whom to speak with and who are they? Um, so I
1: started this because I would love to do a book tour. I do not have the time or the funds to have a book tour. <laughs> so this is kind of my digital book tour. And I've been specifically that. looking for people who talk about like, like life transformations or like things that happen to people that are like, that are being highlighted or spotlighted or something in that sense. Um, anything that has to do with human stories or the human experience or, 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 anything along those lines and or adjacent to it um you know again i wrote this book to kind of have the conversation that isn't had um that you only really know if you're going through it and at that point like you know wish i would have known before i knew (laughs) so you know it's i just want people to know before they find out for themselves
0: Good answer. Okay. And I know I said last question, but I'm going to build off of the musical theater in the title of the book. What is your musical theater experience? It's it's the only
1: experience. <laughs> 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 um I have been performing and on stages and singing since I was like four years old. Um, Much to my parents' annoyance, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I mean, I grew up with Broadway. I grew up with pop music. My dad's a musician. My mom's a musician. My older sister is a professional singer. My little sister sings. You know, it runs in the family. My I think my great-grandfather started the first American-based Tamburitzen band, like, ever anywhere. Um, so it runs in the family. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I ran away to New York when I was 18, right after high school, and started, you know, started a career in musicals. And so I've done that for the last, you know, 18 years okay when
0: you got to New York at 18 where did you live I lived in East Harlem I loved it okay where were you coming from Pennsylvania okay and how did you find an apartment in East Harlem I
1: spent wasted six months of this poor realtor's life looking for an apartment um and finally found one <laughs> he hated me Oscar his name is Oscar I will never forget him <laughs>
0: Uh, I would love his side of that story. Where did yeah, you live? He, where did you he probably live those, wanted to kill me. <laughs> where did you live for those six months? I mean, I was still in high school. So you I would started... come back and forth from Pennsylvania looking for okay. So you knew this is this wasn't kind of I'm done, I'm going tomorrow. You had a plan.
1: Yeah. This this had I bullied my parents into allowing me to do this. And it basically was kind of understood that like you can help me and let me do this, or I will do it without you. But one way or another, I'm leaving here. And it, it fucked up our relationship for a while, but you know, they, and I'm sure I'm literally writing a second book right now and a third book maybe, um, as of like yesterday. And one of the things that I was, that I was writing about is like my parents' perspective of that. Like they didn't help me move. I used my mom's car. I drove up here. I met a guy that I had met on the internet to like help me move in. That could have been me being murdered. Like who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I made some bad decisions as a teenager in All moving to New York. Do, so that's okay. Right. Totally. Like yeah, moving to New York alone as a teenager wasn't the, wasn't the brightest idea, but I did it. <laughs> and I lived. Uh, the city's been trying to kill me for almost 20 years. So, uh, you know, just the perspective of like how scared they must have been, you know, and like they had time to think about it. I decided in December of 2004 and January 2005, I was like, great, I'm going to drive to the city because I can do that, and I'm going to start looking at apartments. And I found a realtor online, and he, I dragged his ass, and he dragged mine all over. I looked at apartments in the East Village, the West Village, Upper East Side. It was crazy.
0: What was the first show that you landed? Oh, God. It was... <clears throat>
1: I did some of these, like, janky-ass cabaret things at Don't Tell Mamas in Midtown in New York, but then I ended up, like, leaving town on, like, my first, like, contract to do a show, doing Miracle on 34th Street at this theater in the ass-crack of Ohio. Ohio. Just
0: dinner theater. It was a whole mess. Okay. I was not expecting that to be the answer. I expected Off-Broadway, but I didn't expect you in Ohio, so okay. One
1: should be so lucky to be (laughs) (laughs) Off-Broadway. Ohio is where most people who move here to do theater end up. <laughs> Understood. Uh, do you prefer the acting or the singing part of musicals? Well, I mean, they're kind of one and the same. You know, you can't really do one without the other. So, whether you like one or prefer one to the other, you don't have a choice but to do both.
0: Okay, I feel like I should challenge you on that—you can act without singing—but since we're in the musical realm, I'm going to let that pass. I mean, if you're in a musical. Yes, yes, sure. It's. It's. But you cannot complete the show
1: by only doing one of them.
0: Okay, so help me here then. Are musical actors, are they musicians who are acting or are they actors who sing? It really depends on the person. It's There is no monolith there.
1: You know, like some people are actors who sing, and sometimes you can tell who they are, and sometimes you can't. And then there are singers who act, and sometimes you can tell who they are, and sometimes you can't um it de- it depends on the show on the director on the skill set it's there's it's you know no,
0: no one is just one thing right that's a fair answer okay i'll take that uh, uh so you have now you've written a book you have acting singing and writing and producing as part of your credits at this stage of your career do you prefer to be in still on stage or do you look forward to the off stage uh, aspect of uh entertainment
1: I'm sure not to your surprise, there's a story that goes with this. Um, I had kind of given up. I well, not given up, I just wanted to redirect. I wanted to be left alone. I didn't like feel sparkly about it anymore. And then, and then, and I apologize to anyone who's hearing this again, but um April of last year, my best friend from high school came to see me in the city, and we went to go see Chicago with Pamela Anderson. And she was great. I was like beside myself with how good she was. But sitting there, I was watching the dude who plays the Richard Gere role, Billy Flynn, and I was like, "I'm coming for your job. I want. I want to do that role." And about a week later, the national tour, like thing, the audition went up for it, and I hadn't. I hadn't auditioned for anything in like two years, and I was like, "Well, I'll send in for it anyway. Who cares?" And I got it. Wow. And I booked it. And so I was in rehearsal for this and we were doing a pre-performance run of the tour and I was replaced at the last minute and kind of wasn't given a reason why. And it was very poorly handled by production and management and it's water under the bridge now, who cares? I went to Europe for three weeks and like raged in Paris, it was great. And uh, that kind of like ripped the rug out from under me and I kind of was already coming from a place where I was done with it and then that really kind of like welded the lid shut. So I, you know, compose and produce like more pop, pop-centered pop music on my own for fun at home. Um, and that's kind of like one of my creative outlets, you know? Like I, I bought all this equipment during the pandemic. You're looking at some of it uh, for music stuff. And I was like, great, well, I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm going to write and produce my own shit. And if someone wants me to do some stuff for them, cool. But, you know... That's how that kind of ended. I think one day I'll go back to it. I just need a minute to step away because it's the industry's going through some shit right now. The union's going through some shit right now. And I just can't be asked. <laughs> I have other things I want to do.
0: <laughs> that's uh, With with that story, that's uh, very understandable. And uh, I, would, uh, <laughs> I would not uh, blame you for keeping that as your uh, point of view for quite a while.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the good part of it is, is the guy who replaced me is a good friend of mine. And like, we're cool. And we talked about it. And it's, you know, it's fine. He's the one that warned me. And so, you know, it's, there's a lot. I won't go into it. <laughs> okay. But we're good. It's all, all
0: good. <laughs> <right>. moving on. <laughs> yes. So, what does your, if you have a typical day currently, what does that look like? Oh my God, a typical day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, this year I started doing the whole like getting up at like five, six in the morning thing, like for no fucking reason, just because I was like, I, I want to like it was just a thing that had been on my radar like who are these creatures that get up at five in the morning on purpose like what's wrong with you and i started doing it and i totally get it like i'm wrecked by the end of the day but like you get so much done and you it like t- you bend you're bending time by doing this you know your day is like 72 hours long and you can have like three or four different versions of a day within one um so yeah, I get up at five. I've started going to the gym at like six, seven in the morning, which also is like, who is this person? Who are these creatures that are going to the gym at this hour? <laughs> and I'm now one of them. And uh yeah, I mean, I come home, I do some work. I'm about to drop a podcast of my own with one of my producing partners. I'm turning the book into a TV show. So I'm working on the pilot and it's going to be a musical as well. So like that's, you know, I'm working on those components. And, um, you know, I have, I have my, uh, my regular day job, I work in sales and, you know, do calls all day long. And then like between calls, I do other things. And then like, I, I do some writing and, you know, just kind of try to bend as much time as I can.
0: <laughs> okay. Now that's uh, that makes sense. And as you are getting the show ready for, I think you said pilot, uh, do you have an idea who's going to play you? Or are you going to play yourself or who would be that ideal actor for you? You
1: know, I have been so struggling with this because in the book, I'm 25. And like, clearly, the face and body are not 25 anymore. And like, I not very specifically... Not clear oh, to me. That's very sweet of you, but you're lying. Um, It's the ring light. It's helping. <laughs> <laughs> um, And so I have this weird block in my head that I can't play me because I'm supposed to be young. But it's like the age of the story. It doesn't... The, the story doesn't change with any kind of age whatsoever. Um, but I do have a person that I've worked with that I'm supposed to be meeting up with this week to kind of drop that bomb on him as like a possibility. And if not, I have a secondary idea for him. He looks a little bit like me when I was that age. He's younger than I am, um, significantly younger than I am. Like, I think he's probably like 27. Um, Doesn't matter. But uh, he he's maybe
0: going to be the person that maybe plays. Maybe we'll see. I don't know. Haven't I gotten know. there yet. Okay. Um, somehow, we are coming up on time already. We have covered a, a lot of ground. So much. <laughs> so much ground. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I probably should have Edward? I mean, that's that's up to you. This
1: is your universe. I'm just a guest in it.
0: It's the first time I've got that answer for that question, so I'll take it. Um, <clears throat> I guess this is my last follow-up then. And I know I said last question in the book, but... Other chronic illnesses. What does that refer to?
1: Yeah. um, Well, (laughs) um, I think I talk a lot about um, like substance use in the book. I drank my way through chemo. I'm very open about it. It was not a good decision, uh, short and long term. Um, I also talk about like body dysmorphia and the way that you feel about yourself, uh, because that changes significantly through the process as well. You know, like you, I, I like specific to my case, I went into this like 25, tan and gorgeous. My doctor was like, literally, you're the picture of health. How do you have ca- this cancer? Um, you know, and I came out of it looking like Mitch McConnell at 26. So, you know, that was rough. And, uh. I didn't handle I didn't handle that well you know like I didn't it was it was um <laughs> don't be shy you can laugh at that it was like I have to stop um yeah but like it was rough you know like you look in the mirror and you're like how do I look like this how am I 25 and how do I look like this and it just really puts a really shit perspective on where you are standing. And that's true for your career, and it's true for your relationships, and it's true for substances that you're maybe using or not using, um, you know, how you feel and or view hookup culture or whatnot. Like, I was definitely doing that in the middle of chemo, which was a terrible idea. Like, turns out people still want to fuck Mitch McConnell. So I did pretty well. But, you know, it was, um, it was a rough time. And the chronic illness piece it very much kind of covers those components of, like you know, how do you cope and what is the aftermath of that?
0: I'm glad you actually said cope there because the, I think the humor helps with that and hundred percent. So that's, that is apparent. And while we have been lighthearted and talked about a lot of serious topics, I I do think that there is a uh, benefit to having a sense of humor when it comes to such heavy topics. Uh, You have to, that said, as since you've said, Mitch McConnell, It hit me who I think... Don't say it it again. He'll appear somewhere. No, that's a good point. (laughs) Um, But he's busy with Ted Lasso. But Jason Sudeikis is, you know, he's a little bit older than 25 now at this point, but that's who, uh, you know, I, I think that it would be somebody that, Looks just like you and could play you younger if you got him at 25. I don't think it's just the beard, but it may be just the beard. I mean, that is just the highest of
1: compliments. I have had a crush on him since the first second I saw him on SNL. I was like, who is this man? Very handsome. Very handsome man. I will take that as the highest of compliments. Thank you.
0: And maybe I'll reach out and be like, hi. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, where can our listeners uh, find you? We'll post everywhere the book is and uh, post where to find you, but where, where's the one place they should go if they want to uh, connect or learn more? I am a big user of TikTok and Instagram, and that is just at Edward Miskey. So we'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, Edward, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a blast. Uh, I look forward to reading your book. I wish you nothing but the best, and uh, I, I will be rooting for you uh, on each and every one of your endeavors going forward. Thank you so much. You too.